BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show. Today on the James Altucher Show. The world is going through a crisis right now, and it's not just one crisis. We're dealing with inflation, Russia-Ukraine, the rise of China and what that might mean for the U.S., pandemics, and what I think is very critical in the U.S. is we're dealing with the division of society, how one side now completely hates the other and vice versa. Well, I don't have to talk about it today. Ian Bremmer, the author of the recent book, The Power of Crisis, is coming on the podcast to talk about it with me. I'm assuming I'm getting cognitive dissonance and I'm assuming others are as well. Whenever there's an article that says something like New Yorkers moving back greater than ever at a rate greater than ever, I say, okay, maybe this is New York is coming back strong, which I hope it does. I, I love New York. I've a lifelong resident and citizen of New York. But then I look at the article that everyone's tweeting and I realize everyone's not only is the article incorrect, headline is a lie and everyone is misinterpreting it. So for instance, more people left New York city than any other city. So it makes sense that more people are returning, but they're not as many people are returning as, as other cities, despite what the article says. And there's 36% occupancy of office buildings. And there's still fewer people in New York than there was, you know, much fewer people in New York now than right before the pandemic. My heavily data-driven uh, analytic take is that New York feels awesome right now. <laughs> I, look, I'm I'm in New York all the time. I, New York feels awesome to me as well. Yeah. Although there's, I have children in New York, and there's much more worries about crime and violence. Yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's true. That's not, I mean, do you take the subway? Yes, of course, all the time. So, so do my daughters, and I can tell you, they are much more nervous than they were before, even when they were younger. Yeah. Look, but I, I do think a lot of that is just the headline and the social media that shows videos when these things happen and people take small, relatively small numbers of anecdotes and they get much more worried about them because, of course, you know, absolute levels of violence uh, in urban centers around the United States is still way, way. I mean, it's up in the last couple of years, but it's way down compared to was it in the 90s, for example. And people just don't feel that way. I, I believe this could be where I have cognitive dissonance. So my data is I look at office occupancy because as you know, it takes 
$100 billion a year to run New York. So, and as much as people hate Midtown and the people who work in Midtown and whatever, you need them to pay the taxes to feed the hundred billion. Now, maybe though, yeah, the government is willing to foot the bill. The federal government maybe is willing to foot the bill for where, you know, cause New York is such a flat, it's such an important city for the United States. It's important to keep the lights on. So maybe New York city benefits and gets a check from the government. I don't know, but that's the only thing I think that could really help in the long term. Look, I think if New York, if what happens is that Midtown real estate in New York prices go down because it was massively built up and because people don't need the office real estate they used to have, what that means is that suddenly everyone in the country and in the world who was desperate to get into New York but was priced out of that market is now going to be able to actually have a piece of it. And I'm excited about that. I think that's just going to bring more diversity into the city. That would be great. And on top of it, if the cost of doing business in New York City becomes cheaper in part because of rents, it'll be amazing to see what, what businesses come there. I hope New York is back strong. I'm a, I'm a fan of Eric Adams. I, I yeah. am a friend of his and held fundraisers for him. And I hope he succeeds. I hope he runs for president in 2024. But I think he needs to, you know, if New York City comes back, there's a strong case for that. I tell you, 2024 is a target-rich environment. I mean, I the number of both Dems and Republicans that are going to be looking to knock off the uh, the existing and the nominal uh, incumbent is uh, is pretty high. Well, this is related to kind of one of the first problems. So in your book, uh, The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World, your book is a guide for right now. Like people need to know right now what these three threats are and how to solve them. Because the first threat or one of the first threats that you talk about is the bifurcation of America. And this has been going on for a long time. If you're only slightly left of center, you're a fascist far right winger now, because that's how far the left has gone. And similarly, if you're on the right side, for people who are mildly right of center, you're practically a communist, according to people on the right. Like everybody, everything has gone all the way to the edges. And it's like a, it's like a kind of a, a cold civil war right now. Yeah, this January 6th commission has been such a horrible indictment of America's ability to just do basic governance precisely because of the polarization. People say that it's a completely, you know, one-sided debate, you know, even though Liz Cheney is co-chairing this thing and she votes with the Republican Party at 90 plus percent of the time, like she's a conservative, she's a strong conservative, but because she's not pro-Trump, um, she's kind of the devil incarnate for the GOP. And we, we can't have a normal discussion just in the same way that impeachment's been broken, uh, this January 6th commission is completely broken. And a very important episode of the history of the political life of our country, and yet one that we will learn literally zero lessons from. And there are just so many things like that that are happening in U.S. political life right now that are each and every one of them unprecedented in our lifetimes that just display greater dysfunctionality of our political system. This is a big threat because, you know, even in 2020, there was talk of smart, rational people were talking of there might be a, a breakup of the country. Like that kind of discussion has settled, but do you think in an extreme case that could happen? Like red states could become more independent and blue states become more independent and 
Oh, well. Texas has their own electric grid, so they could split off no problem. And more independent and split off. I mean, I could drive a few trucks through the division of those two things that you just said. Um, more independent, we are there. I mean, you know, I, I've had conversations with Disney executives where they tell me they are having a harder time managing the balance between their employee bases and the governments in Florida and California than they are in China. Wow. That's that's insane, right? Well, okay, but let, let me understand that. So what wasn't their problem before that has now become a problem? Uh, I mean, the very fact that they are fighting these, you know, pitched battles about identity politics and woke capitalism with, you know, red state Florida on the one side saying that they're going to take away their tax benefits if they don't change how they think about their portrayal of entertainment for families and for kids. And California, blue state California on the other side of this, and they happen to have their two largest employee bases in these two very polarized states in America. I mean, the United States, we are the country that most worships animal spirits, the almighty dollar, the role of entrepreneurs, big companies and the private sector. We let that stuff rip. And yet right now, both of our parties are involved in a race to the bottom to score points against our ability to conduct basic business. Um, and so that is very much this issue of our politics has become much more broken, much more divided. Um, and yeah, I worry about that, but I don't worry about it in the sense that I think we're heading to another civil war. I worry about it in the sense that it's a big tax on growth and innovation. It's a big yeah. tax on America's ability to lead by example, by other countries around the world to look at us and say, yeah, I believe in the U.S., and their leadership. And I want to be more committed to that and aligned to that over time. That's a problem. So when Biden says that the Ukraine war is really a war of democracies versus autocracies, my response is, I hate to say it, that's actually our weakest suit. In 1989, it was our strongest. Today, we have a lot of strong suits, our military, the almighty dollar, our banks, our energy production, our food production, our geography. There are lots of things about America that are very compelling globally, but not our political system. And, and that's as someone who grew up in the Cold War and watched our political system help us win, it's very painful to see that change. Right, because you could say when communism ended that it was our values of innovation and economic growth that won the day. And political liberty, I would say that. Right, and political liberty. Well, I think they're related because I think innovation happens in a country that has political liberty. I'm not sure that's true. Okay, well, let's talk about that. Like, Because China, you can say there's a lot of technological innovation, but a yes. lot of it is more, I would say there's, there's business model innovation in China, but I'm not sure about technological innovation. I, I think most people would have agreed with you until 10 years ago. And now you see that China is driving incredible innovation. They have actually, not only are they at parity with the Americans in, in most new technologies, but they significantly exceed us in facial recognition and voice recognition in digital consumer internet. And frankly, uh, that's kind of shocking 
to those of us like you and me that have grown up believing that you cannot actually have effective innovation in a political system that is so incredibly repressive as authoritarian China. Yeah, maybe it's because the political system turns out to be not as important as we think. Like maybe really you just need the elements of capitalism, like letting people be rewarded for, you know, work they do rather than communism. And, uh, uh, and that's all that it takes to have innovation. The one thing China has that has an advantage over us is that they don't care. So for instance, they'll, they'll win on biotech because they'll start cloning humans. Whereas we'll be debating the ethics of it. And, they don't care about and their lack of concern about privacy, for example, and being able to consolidate immense amounts of data in these super apps. I mean, the, the, they make the U.S. look like look like Quakers uh, in the context of that. Right. So so maybe and, you know, given the fact that political liberty is kind of, as you say, it's kind of this cloak we've worn to impress the rest of the world. But a little bit of it, it's a cloak that's hidden what's underneath. We haven't always been politically liberal. We've often not had. We, you know, we always claim to have equal opportunity of outcomes, and uh, that's not always been the case. There's always been some sort of either racism or, you know, like, like any country. But now, but now we're sort of taking it to an extreme and trying to, you know, like you say, woke capitalism doesn't really; those two words don't really go well together. Yeah, uh, and and they are important because they reflect a view on the part of large numbers of Americans who don't have access to capital themselves that this system does not work for them. Right. And you're absolutely right. The Chinese perspective is we don't really care about that. And uh, we are going to heavily use the state to invest in those sectors that we think will create strategic advantages for us. And we will deploy labor into those sectors. And there's not going to be a bottom-up decision by individuals of what kind of models they're going to have. We're going to drive a lot more. But now there is a robust private sector in China, but that's fundamentally not what's been driving a lot of their most important innovation. Right. So so looking at one more time with this January 6th thing, yeah. it's not actually about any political issues. I mean, I haven't watched any of the proceedings, so I can't say for sure. But I would argue most people don't really care about any political issues. They're just doing an us versus them thing. Yeah. Um, like what political issues do people care about? Well, I, I think people care a lot right now um, about uh, Roe versus Wade and yes. about 50 years of women's rights that are about to be overturned. I think people care a lot about gun violence and the fact that the United States appears to be the only advanced industrial democracy in the world that doesn't have a willingness to engage with um, useful solutions to that. I think people care a lot about $5 gasoline and the fact that it has become materially harder for them after two years of lockdown and pandemic, and they thought that things were going to be okay again, and suddenly there's yet another crisis for them to have great anxiety over. And in the context of those things, very few people spend a lot of time thinking about January 6th, where they think the outcome is irrelevant. They think it doesn't matter much to them. And furthermore, a lot of them already think the system more broadly is rigged. So whether or not the election of Trump was rigged is almost secondary 
to the fact that they don't believe very much in the legitimacy of the underlying political institutions and the leaders that they're voting for. And so if that's the case, why would they deploy a lot of interest in these show trials that are not going to create outcomes that have any meaning for them? I've had a number of followers of mine, people that engage with me, say, Ian, tell me why I should care about January 6th. I know why I should care about $5 gas. Why should I care about January 6th? And, and if I have the time to spend to engage with them, I can get them to a very reasonable place. But it, I completely understand why in this environment, this does not feel like a priority. Right, because on the one hand, you can argue January 6th is the most important thing America has going on because an insurrection, a, a so-called coup, which is, by the way, alleged, but that's the word being used, so yep. we have to use it, that threatens the halls of democracy. Like that's the, the foundation upon which the country is built is that we can withstand these things. But here it is, it's, there's something happened that could have taken to an extreme top of the government. That's extremely important. On the other hand, there's conspiracies within conspiracies within conspiracies. You know, there is Roe versus Wade. There is $5 gas. The markets are collapsing. Like these are real issues that are affecting everyday lives and nobody and, and the other thing is nobody really understands these issues like like take roe versus wade roe versus wade is the symbol of women's rights and pro-choice i'm pro-choice i'm assuming you're pro-choice i would say most people are but it's probably around 50 50 in in the country i don't even know and uh you know pro-choice is an interesting thing why is roe versus wade the the, the document that allows women to have you know, rights over their what to, what to do with their body. I mean, it was Roe versus Wade was a court decision about pro women's rights to privacy. Why can't there just be a law that says abortion's legal? Yeah, and of course, what there are are all sorts of laws that say abortion's legal, um, and they're very different laws um, in different states around the country. And it's precisely because for you to say you don't know what the number is, you're absolutely right, James. You don't know what the number is because the number depends completely on exactly what question you're asked. A large majority of Americans are pro-choice if what you mean is, are they willing to countenance and support legal abortion in at least some circumstances? But what those circumstances are and what percentage of women that would want to have abortions that translates into support for are radically different across the country. Radically different. That, that's right? true, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, I mean, the fact is that a lot of the laws that you will see go into effect in certain states around the country actually align and, and that will be quite restrictive, um, could will nonetheless align with large majorities of people that live in those states because our, our country has gone through a great political sort itself, while the restrictiveness in, you know, sort of urban centers, particularly in the Northeast and on the West Coast, are going to be far, far looser, and the populations will reflect that. So, I mean, what's going to happen? What's going to happen is our country is going to become much more divided. And the thing that bothers me is just how much of what we've seen around Roe versus Wade has itself been unprecedented. So, for example, I read the Alito opinion that was leaked, and you know, you know, it was unprecedented to have a Supreme Court opinion leak publicly. That's never happened before. So that shows that people don't respect the quality of the institution, its legitimacy, its sanctity, uh, the way they used to. Then and by I the way, read, no, one's, no one's investigating why, why that leak occurred. Who did it? Yeah. And then I read the, the uh, opinion 
Um, and then I, I, I was I was horrified that this was not good jurisprudence. This was the kind of thing you would expect to see from a culture, an anti-culture warrior professor on a on a second rate campus. This was not something you'd see from a Supreme Court justice. And I have to tell you, I mean, 10 years ago, I considered the Supreme Court to be one of our the, our political institutions that had eroded the least that you put these people in place. They're very solid. They're very intelligent. They have jobs for life. They are one, even though the confirmation process has itself become politicized, that they they as individual jurists have not been. And and what we saw from that Alito opinion is that is not true. And then you have people that are demonstrating outside of the homes of these justices, which clearly is illegal, according to historic American law, because you, you are not allowed to engage in coercion to try to affect the judicial outcome of an important case. And yet you have the Biden administration saying, well, no, they have perfectly every right. If they want to demonstrate, they can demonstrate. And then you even have this wacko that tries to assassinate Judge Kavanaugh. So, I mean, like on every side, pro-left, pro-right, every single piece of this has been unprecedented in American history. Right. And there's no profile and courage, which takes the opposite stance of what they should take. So for instance, in this case, why can't someone say, look, regardless of what you believe, we've got to protect the sanctity of the Supreme Court. We've got to protect these justices. They are not allowed to protest. We're going to put more security there and so on. And on the other side too, whatever it is, the same thing all and on every single side, it seems. And the problem is then everybody points to this and says, there's hypocrisy. You're willing to do one thing if it doesn't agree with you, but if it's you a do school, the opposite. but it's not if it's a Supreme Court judge. And it is precise. I mean, think about how much worse gun violence has gotten in the course of the past months. And, you know, the the fact that you're finally getting a, a small number of Republicans and Democrats to reach across the aisle to nominally do something and what they're talking about doing in terms of additional, you know, sort of red flag laws um, is so marginal in in responding to the problem but it's so meaningful because it's actually bipartisan it's so unusual and unique in the american political system today that they would consider for a moment stepping out of their political costumes and doing something for the country doing something for the citizens and that is not the way other advanced industrial democracies are being governed right now this is uniquely problematic in the united states I don't even know, though, if we know how to do it. Like, what would you do? Like, like what countries are working right now? Well, I mean, there are a few. Uh, first of all, I would argue that all of the advanced industrial democracies are more politically functional than the U.S. But the ones that you would point to in particular, well, one, you'd say Japan and South Korea, which, to be fair, are much more homogeneous, have cultures that are much more aligned with support for their existing political institutions, have media that's much less corporatized, and much less polarized than the United States, and just have people that are spending much less time on social media. In Japan, there are political, there are restrictions around political ads and whatnot on social media that make it less of a problem. Um, Canada, of course, I mean, yes, they're nicer than we are, but their political system is also much more decentralized uh, than ours is. Their corporates are much smaller as a consequence of the decentralization. Special interests play much less of a role um, in their political system. Money plays much less of a role in their elections. Their elections are very cheap. They're very short. That also helps. Germany 
is, of course, much more functional politically than the United States. They don't have a two-party system. They have a multi-party system, creates more coalitions, forces people to work together to compromise more, to get things done. That's the way their governments come together. So, I mean, I can, I'm giving you lots of examples. And I do think it's important, like everyone right now in, is blaming Biden for all of this inflation. And yet there is same levels of inflation in every advanced industrial economy around the world right now. Like you, the UK has significantly more inflation than the United States. So how is this uniquely Biden's fault? Like no one seems to want to answer that question. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over 100 or 200 different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I, loved, I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I, of course, the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests and having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love, you know, turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away. And I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty, who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100 plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee and I still to this day get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be VP of Entertainment at NBC or whatever? 
So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Inflation is a, a several-year phenomenon. Like it, the Federal Reserve has been increasing the money supply since 2009. Correct. 40% of all the money that's been printed in the history of the U.S. has been printed since March 2020. And you can't blame a president because the president doesn't increase the money supply. The Federal Reserve and Congress does. Look, I mean, there's no question that the sanctions that have been placed against Russia are a very significant reason why oil prices and food prices are higher now, meaningfully higher than they were in January and February. And if you want to blame the president of the United States and the heads of the various European countries because they impose those sanctions in response to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, you can do that. Uh, uh, it's also true that the Black Sea has been mined. Um, and that's another reason why you can't get any of that food out. But so that there, there are political drivers for inflation on top of what you just mentioned. But still, the fact is that that wasn't Biden by himself. That's all of NATO. That's all of our major allies around the world that are moving in the same direction. Also, if that were the only causes of inflation, then the Federal Reserve raising interest rates would have zero effect. Correct. So supply shocks that are done by actions like sanctions on Russia has nothing to do with. Correct. Uh, the supply of money. The Federal Reserve only deals with the supply of money. Yep. There is monetary inflation in the system. When you just double the money of, of the world, the prices are going to double. Of course. But but supply chain situations tend to either work themselves out or become permanent in the system. And there's nothing that raising interest rates won't do that except get everybody fired on top of paying more prices. My point was simply that it strikes me as so silly that this would be made into a politicized issue when the facts are so obviously not aligned with that. But it doesn't matter. It doesn't right. matter because you don't need facts on your side. You just need to make the tribal point and then everyone on your side will get in line. Like, I mean, for example, in Germany today, the population as a whole is not saying, Olaf Schultz, you are responsible for this high level inflation right now. They're not saying that. Why not? In Japan, they're not saying, Kishida, we blame you. Because they, they're a little bit more sensible about this stuff. They're a little less divided than we are. I really don't see that reversing at all. Like, if anything, I thought COVID was going to somehow bring us together. Back in March 2020, I was naive enough to think that COVID would, would help this political bifurcation. But you were right. You were right. It was doing that in March. Yeah, maybe, in, maybe for a few weeks there. I think for a few months. I think before we had vaccines, because we were scared. I mean, for a few months, Fauci was a hero yeah. for everybody. We were all waiting to see what he was going to say every night because like, he just seemed like a solid old guy that would, like, knew his shit and he was doing his stuff. And we're like, okay. And, and you remember Pelosi and Trump got together and they did a massive economic bailout that wasn't just for the fat cats. It was for ab average Americans. It kept restaurants 
going. It kept small businesses going. It kept you know average workers going. The unemployment benefits were expanded, and that was red state and blue state. That was a that was a great package, and it gave us a V-shaped recovery that a lot of people didn't think was possible. Now the problem, I mean, I hate to say this, but a big part of the problem is we were so good at vaccines in a short order that we it became possible to get a lot less scared and start politicizing the virus in the middle of a political cycle, an election cycle. And suddenly it was like, well, look, you know, if you're not old and you don't have pre-existing conditions, you don't necessarily care anymore. So we can start blaming blue state versus red state. And that's what we did. Um, the Europeans did a much better job. They didn't have vaccines for later than we did. It took, it took them a longer period of time, but they actually, the Europe actually comes out of the pandemic stronger as the EU because of the pandemic than they went in. And the United States comes out more divided. The Europeans used the pandemic both to do a Marshall Plan internally, massive redistribution of cash from the wealthy European countries to the poorer ones, the exact opposite of what they did during the Eurozone crisis in 2009, 2010, the lessons they learned there. And they also, it took them longer than Operation Warp Speed because they're bureaucratic and they were cheap. And so they didn't throw everything they had at let's getting vaccines. But the EU actually took power and said, we're going to be in charge of acquiring and distributing vaccines across all of EU. So the wealthy countries in Europe aren't going to get the vaccines first. We're going to give them to everyone. And coming out of this three years later, it turns out that Europe is stronger today. In fact, I would argue that the EU's increase in power and viability has grown faster than the rise of anti-European sentiment and populism in individual European countries over the last three years. And that's, that's truly a, a piece of optimism globally that comes out of my book. And one of the other threats you mentioned, which is the rise of China and its effect around the world, this calls into question the power of the dollar. You, you were talking about the almighty dollar before. The dollar is, is being threatened on a variety of fronts. The cohesiveness of the EU, the rise in China, the war with between Russia and Ukraine is calling into question if oil is going to continue to be priced by the dollar. The dollar really is what holds the U.S.'s power together around the world at the moment. And perhaps this inflation also is a sign that people are not having as much faith in the dollar. Like, do you know why there wasn't inflation in 2020 when they were printing up all this money, despite the fact that nobody was going out and buying anything? The fact that there was so much demand for the dollar. The dollar. The, the Federal Reserve wanted inflation because we were deflating during COVID. And they were printing up so much money and they were they, they were hitting themselves in the heads. Why can't we inflate anything? But it's there was so more the more dollars they printed, the more dollars the rest of the world wanted. And now it's not the case. Well, so I would um argue that the value of the US dollar globally is only going to be significantly undermined if there is a viable alternative. So a lot of people are angry about the US for the reasons you just mentioned, but they don't see a viable alternative as a store of value. Now, the Chinese RMB would be the viable alternative, except it's not convertible. And the reason it's not convertible is because the Chinese government does not want to lose that political power, that influence over a closed market. They don't want the capital outflows. They don't want to give their citizens those choices, both their businessmen 
and their average citizens. Oh, so also, a, though, there's not a lot of transparency into right. their economy. Like, Correct. for all we know, their economy is falling. There is suggestion that their economy is falling apart. We just have no idea. No, no, I, that's not fair uh, because it's true that we can't trust um, you know, the data that's given to us by the Chinese government. But I mean, like we have satellites, like we have people that work in those, um, I don't mean Eurasia group, I mean like companies around the world. The amount of visibility you have into Chinese consumer behavior, into like how much steel is actually being used in a world that just is so much more transparent, that has so many more metrics, that is so interdependent, the ability of the Chinese to completely fake what their what their economy is doing, given the size of their economy, is is virtually nil. I mean, okay, maybe two or five percent at the margins, but no, we do really know what their economy is doing. That's not the issue. The issue is that they refuse. They want control, and I understand why they want control. But as long as that is true, that the RMB is not a viable alternative to the U.S. dollar. So the percentage of dollars in circulation globally the transactions are being conducted in compared to 20 years ago is almost identical. And it is true that over time, I could see a strengthened Eurozone that sets more standards and rules on climate, on privacy and data, uh, on disruptive technologies, on lots of other issues. I could see the Eurozone becoming more viable over time than it presently is. But it would also really be helpful if Europe had big multinational corporations that you want to invest in. And of course, they don't compared to the United States. In new technologies, the Europeans are absent precisely because they haven't been harnessing those animal spirits that we have historically in the US and that the Chinese have to a greater degree more recently. So the Chinese have the companies and the technology, but not the openness. The Europeans have the openness, but not the big companies and technologies. The United States has both. So as much as I've become much more pessimistic about the viability of the American political system, I have virtually the same view today on the American dollar that I did 10 and 20 years ago. I have a stronger view on US energy production, a stronger view on US food production, about the same view on the US military, and a slightly stronger view on US geography and, and its positioning in the world. So the real problem the Americans have today is that the political system, the thing that we were in many ways most proud of and rightfully, even though we had a bunch of hypocrisy, even though we had a lot of historical problems, but still, you know, you wanted a world that was run by the Americans much more than you did the Soviets and no one else was capable of doing it. That has eroded significantly. And I agree that over time, the idea that everyone wants into the dollar, but the American political system is broken, like that, that has a hard time sustaining itself for generations. But this is not a 10-year issue. It's really not a 10-year issue. And you know, although your, your book is from a societal perspective, like this is the threat to society and this yeah. is what society should do, from an individual, this is a threat to the individual. Yes. As we live in a society that is being overcome with these threats, what should we as individuals look towards? What should we do for our survival? Because you, because it's not sustainable either to be happy and safe with your family when you have these threats circling around. When the world does be, when the country does become more divided, when there are kind of you know breaks in the dollar, or when China 
um, befriends every other country and, and pays them off more than we're able to. And their technology seeps in everywhere and, and, you know, causes harm to us. Like what do individuals do to, to survive these threats? So that's a really big question. I want to answer it big picture and then small picture, if you don't mind. Yeah. Um, so big picture, we need to understand why this is happening. Um, because it is such a crisis-rich environment right now. People feel the anxiety. They feel like this isn't sustainable. The world is coming apart. It's not because of the leaders. It's not. People think it's because of the leaders. They get angry at the leaders. It's actually structural. What happens, we know that there are economic recessions. We know that every seven years, on average, the United States since World War II has had a recession. We know boom cycles, bust cycles. We've got fiscal and monetary tools to respond. We understand that. In fact, we know that we might be heading into a global recession right now. We worry about it, but we understand what the tools are to respond. Here's the thing. There are also geopolitical recessions, global order. Our entire world order has boom and bust cycles, and we're heading into a bust cycle. And the reason for that is very simple. It's because when we create institutions, both domestically and globally, political institutions, they reflect the balance of power and the interests and priorities of the leaders and the people at the time they're created. And then, of course, that underlying balance of power shifts and the world changes and your country changes and capitalism changes, but the institutions are sticky. And eventually they break, they erode, they delegitimize, they break. And, and what happens then is you get a whole bunch of crises and the seeds of a new, more functional global order actually arise, they, they are planted and they are sown in those crises. So the crises are the answer to these problems. You think NATO is brain dead and then Russia invades Ukraine. And that's the thing that forces you to make NATO stronger, to reform it, to deal with the Asian allies, to deal with cyber, to deal with the Europeans not spending money on defense. It's such an obvious thing. Presidents have been saying this to the Europeans for decades. They've refused to move off their asses until Russia punches them in the mouth, right? It's what Tyson says. You know, you've got a great strategy until you're hit in the face. Right. And that's sometimes you need to be hit in the face. That's what climate's doing. That's what the pandemic did for Europe. It wasn't big enough to do in the United States. That's what disruptive technology is increasingly doing. So people need to understand that the reason all of this is happening is not because Trump, because Biden. It's not because Boris Johnson, because Bolsonaro. It's because we are, we're, we've been driving this car that over time is breaking down. And no, we don't have to walk. We're going to need a new car, right? We'll need, it's not that all institutions are bad, it's that we'll need to reform or create new institutions. That's where we are. And the problem is the word we, because we're so bifurcated, at least in the US, how does we happen? Right, and that's the micro point. So let me tell you one of the reasons I'm optimistic about this, or at least hopeful. And that's because we are, the next global order is going to be increasingly non-Westphalian. What I mean by that is that central governments are going to matter less. We see this already happening in response to the pandemic, in response to climate. And climate change, there's, Trump came into power he takes the U.S. out of the Paris climate deal. It doesn't matter. America's carbon trajectory stays just what it was, moving towards a renewable future because of mayors and governors and banks 
and corporates and NGOs and young people, all of whom realize that climate is a growing problem. There's only one side of the science and that we need to move to post-carbon future. And that if we don't, the Chinese are doing it fast and we're not going to be the energy superpower anymore. They are. So it's not about hugging trees and saving whales. It's also about making sure we don't lose to Beijing. So that's what's extraordinary is that the central government doesn't matter as much anymore. I mean, it would be better if Washington and Beijing could get along and work together on a new climate deal. But the fact is that the future of climate and the future of one of the biggest crises, global crisis that we face today will not be resolved fundamentally by our governments in Washington and Beijing. The response to the pandemic sure as hell wasn't primarily responded to by central governments in Washington, Beijing. In fact, those were two of the worst actors. Beijing, so confident, so overconfident about their lockdowns in the first year and how well they worked, that they didn't bother to get their people vaccinated. One of the few big countries that they could actually force vaccinations on people, and they didn't bother. And then the variants changed, and now they're going to be facing 2% growth because zero COVID doesn't work anymore because they're dealing with measles as opposed to their ability to lock down the beginning. Um, you know, that that's really, and yet, and yet we have the vaccines, we have the therapeutics, we have the ability to respond with governance. And so I think the ability of individuals to recognize that our collective future for all of our history, we've been thinking about governments are going to save us. If things get really bad, central governments are the actors and the only actors that will matter, and really only the big ones, only America, and then eventually only China. Turns out that's not the case. In fact, you know, even the EU, we're not talking about a central government. We're talking about a supranational, supragovernmental institution that itself is becoming more powerful precisely because individual governments are getting whiplashed by polarization and electoral cycles, and yet there's still need for rules of the road and values and governance and having your economy work and having consistency in your expectations over time. So this is ultimately probably the most hopeful book I've ever written for precisely because I see that the next global order is one that we are starting to build and that is more sustainable for the 21st century. I am so glad you convinced me that the family car should be the Defender 110. It is so beautiful inside. It's so comfortable and it just feels indestructible. Yes, it really is. I've been waiting a long time for the new model to come out. The Defender 110, I'm telling you, it's my favorite car of all times. It's my third one. You know, I have stories of going off road. The guy managed the group. He was like, what are you doing in this beautiful car? I'm like, I'm going off road. He's like, are you sure? Because you can use one of ours. And then they look like Mad Max cars. I'm like, no, 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 no. We're going to do this. And he was shocked. Wow. Well, it's great because the Defender has been reimagined for 21st century adventure and it's unparalleled off-road ability 
as well as its robust interior, are invaluable whether you're headed towards uncharted territory or just a weekend of exploration. The Defender 110 tackles challenging surroundings with absolute confidence. The SUV conveys strength outside and in, featuring peerless technology like an intuitive driver display and an award-winning infotainment system. That's my favorite part, to keep you connected no matter where the journey takes you. Adventure is unique to everyone, and so is the Defender. Choose from the two-door Defender 90, the four-door Defender 110, or the larger Defender 130 with the ability to seat up to eight passengers. You'll find uncompromising performance in all three. So pack up and go even further with the Defender 110. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything than go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's health care by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I'm definitely going to use him from now Not on. that you need it. You're, you're young and healthy. James, I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might, you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the HIMSS app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hymns.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. You saw this during COVID, the rise of local. Like, I'm just picking them almost at random, but not quite, but New York state and Texas or New York state and Georgia had radically different policies towards COVID. They both survived with different results maybe, but they both survived. It was doable and the world moves on. And hopefully things like that continue to happen. And we, we always knew that politics at heart is a local phenomenon. Change is local. And now it's sort of like change is local, but news is global. So, so it's more interesting to talk about Trump versus Biden. But if you want the streets paved, you got to elect a good mayor. And maybe that I'm guessing that's what you're saying is that we realize that now more as a society and we'll have more interest in change at a local level. And that's what truly spreads to a global level. Look, we vote local. We think local. We engage local. And yet, when we talk about the media, it is on a much more macro scale. And that's because we don't consume media anymore. Media consumes us. We are the product 
It is an, a corporate environment where individuals are harvested for their data, for their attention, for their addiction, for their clicks. And the way that works is polarization and anxiety and anger and hatred and titillation and entertainment, none of which is good for the country and none of which is good for us as human beings. So I, that's I, I a problem. I also still wonder how it, I mean, there's so much hate online, like the rise of, and as much as I love the rise of social media, actually in the past 20 years, like I'm the biggest- Well, you're good at it. You know, I, I love it. And I love seeing what people are up to from all walks of my life on Facebook or Twitter. But at the same time, I've also been the subject of so much hate on social media. It's a very hateful place. And uh, uh, that hurts the the coming together of people. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. So I mean, the funny thing is I, I don't think I'm the focus of a lot of hate on social media. Maybe it's because I don't care uh, or maybe it's because I have a sense of humor about it and think, or maybe I'm just too narcissistic and I don't think it's hate. I think they really like me deep down. I don't know what my problem is. I completely agree that social media is bad for society. And I do believe that either we're going to have to engage in a much more intrusive regulatory environment around social media because these companies won't do it themselves, or the danger is that more authoritarian, technologically empowered models of governance will become more stable. Because right when, when I wrote my book, The J-Curve, back in 2006, I thought that open democracies were ultimately more stable than consolidated authoritarian regimes, in part because technology really undermined authoritarian regimes, the communications revolution, right? I mean, that's what got you the colored revolutions, what got you the Arab Spring. It's what got you the wall coming down was information and people in these countries learning about how life was much better outside and saying, I, I just not going to tolerate the way my government's working anymore. But today, it's not that way. Today, it's the data revolution. It's the surveillance revolution. It disempowers citizens. It's top down. It creates polarization. It undermines civil society. And if that's true, that means that fundamentally, the business models of technology have moved away from empowering democracies, are actually fragmenting democracies, and are empowering technologically um, sophisticated authoritarian regimes like China. Now, if that continues for another 10 years, then we've got a fundamental problem. Uh, and I worry about that deeply. I mean, it could be that the rise of automation will, will in part solve that because then we'll be able to actually move manufacturing back to the U.S. In a, in a profitable way. If if robots are doing all the manufacturing, we don't have to outsource it to China. So let me push back because I agree that that would be an economic fix for the United States in the sense that you'd have much less, you'd have more decoupling and you'd have, you know, sort of much less interdependence, though that would also lead to fewer guardrails on conflict between the United States and China geopolitically, but let's leave that aside. But what I am suggesting is that the Chinese technology model has the ability to nudge their citizens with heavy carrots and sticks towards behavior that is considered patriotic or at least safe, which means that a million Uyghurs can be put in concentration camps and they're not, and the remaining Uyghurs are not able to demonstrate because they have true surveillance over that society, and they've been completely disempowered, the opposite of what Tom Friedman would have expected 10, 15, 20 years ago. And yet in the United States, even if you have more jobs, even if you have a better economic system, 
you have social media driving massively more anxiety and dissonance and hatred and anger. And, and that deeply undermines civil society. So I'm saying that to increase it, like if that continues, and it doesn't have to continue, I think there are lots of ways you could stop it. One would be intrusive regulation. Another would be the blockchain undermining centralized forms of data surveillance and moving that power back in the hands of individuals. I mean, another would be quantum computing and suddenly data is just not secure anywhere anymore. And so it just doesn't work that way. I mean, I can see lots of ways this gets blown up in the next 10 years, but the present trajectory, I mean, if you just take where we're going right now and play it out, which is always unsafe to do, then irrespective of whether China becomes the largest economy or not, China is going to be much more politically stable than they are presently and the U.S. will be much less so. And there's really no way to predict one way or the other which direction that's going to go. Like you say, it's a dangerous activity to take the current trajectory and see where it is in 10 years, but we also can't predict the opposite either. I think what you have to do is you have to make the strongest possible argument for both sides and then see what you think holds up on the base that that at least gives you percentages. Like I, I don't trust people that straw man arguments. I mean, if, if I'm saying I think that China is going to be the largest economy in the world. Well, tell me how I might be wrong. I mean, I see that their demographics are shrinking after 2027. I see the massive corporate debt they have. You know, let, let me make, make the strongest argument I can for China's economic dysfunction. And what happens if China only grows at one or 2% a year for the next 10 years? They're not going to be the largest economy in the world. Okay, well, how likely is that? Right? I mean, I think your book or your article or your just your arguments are so much stronger if you're willing to proactively say how you could be wrong and then and make that a strong argument. Don't make don't dispense with that argument. And and that's of course something that's so much harder to do in this media environment, in this political environment. No, I I agree with that. And I think I think that's a good point to close on is that wherever you're hearing your media or or wherever you're gathering your opinions, a try to go to as close to the source of the data as possible and B, try to, what you're saying is steel man your argument, which is argue the other side so well that you could argue it even better than the other side. And then you know what you're up against. Then you know the facts on both sides and, and you can start to make reasonable decisions. Well, you don't really see a lot of that in society. I couldn't agree more with you on that, James. Absolutely. So, so Ian Bremmer, The Power of Crisis, How Three Threats and Our Response Will Change the World. I think this is a critically important book. We're already seeing the world start to shift on its axis in this past few months. I'm very much an optimist going all the way back. I've been laughed for my optimism so many times on CNBC, but it's worked for me so far. I'm still optimistic, but I do get nervous now, which I never used to. Yeah, I get nervous too, but, but it's nice to be in a position where, look, at the very least, the book the world needs a more hopeful book right now. There are plenty of people out there that are plenty smart that are saying how the wheels are coming off. So I kind of feel like uh, at least I'm providing a little bit of a service. Yeah, very good. Yeah. Thanks, Ian. Good to see you, man. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.